you see that enough, we say that enough, and it becomes just, you know, a hundred words that you can explain what you believe very concisely. Has anybody memorized it yet? Just curious. Been memorized the whole thing yet? I see a few hands back there. Sure. Way to go, guys. And uh, if you need a good, clean copy, just ask. We'll, we'll get you the, the text of the one we're using and make sure that you can uh, lay it down and, and uh, recite it, memorize it, however that works for you. We're looking at this statement in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus will come and judge the living and the dead. I want to deal with the return of Christ, that Jesus will come this morning. I'm talking about judgment next week. So just really the focus on the first part of this, that Jesus will return. So let me ask you, what is your understanding? That's what I want you to get in your head for a minute. What is your understanding about the return of Jesus Christ? Now I can help you a little bit with the when. Uh, This is the easiest one to take off the table very quickly because Jesus said you can forget about the when and there's no way you're going to figure out, you know, a secret code and crack a timetable and lay it out. The words of Jesus look something like this in Matthew 24, but about that day or hour knows no one, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So just forget about that. Now you can kind of understand if you hold the belief that tribulation will increase towards the end of the age uh, before the return of Christ. So that could kind of be a thing where you're like, oh, that looks like it, you know, persecution of Christianity is increasing. Maybe we're getting near it. But listen, that could go thousands of years. That could go hundreds of years. So I wouldn't sell the farm, you know, and and shave my head and go live on a mountain or do anything radical uh, because if you do, you will be wrong. Jesus is pretty clear on this. So I'm not asking you to figure out when Jesus will return. I think we can all just take that off the table as we're not going to figure that out. And, and Christ even said as much. But I'm asking you this morning about what pictures are in your head about what it looks like at the end of the age. In other words, when you think the Lord's going to return, what, what, not, not when's it going to happen, but what, what does that look like? In, in your mind, you've got a picture now, the question is, I'm not sure how you got that picture in your mind. There's a lot of ways you could have got it in there. You know, a postcard, a Christmas card, a, a comic book, a, a book you read. Uh, and I say all of this because once we get pictures in our heads, it's hard to argue against those pictures. Around here, we have a word for that. We call it baggage. And once you get baggage, it's very hard to set your baggage down and walk away. You can say, I'm going to, but what you'll find is about... A day from now, you'll walk over there and pick it back up and hold it again. And you're like, no, I need to let this down. And then you'll pick it back up again. In other words, in your brain, your mind goes down certain pathways, and they are well-worn. I have a little barn out behind my house where I keep all my woodworking tools. And you can tell I'm a frequenter because there's a well-worn path in the grass that goes from my back door to the front door of my wood shop. And I walk that path every day, uh, sometimes several times a day, and it's a well-worn path. Uh, I've asked myself several times why I don't step to the left one foot or step to the right one foot and wear the grass evenly so I don't have that line in the grass. But you know what happens? You know what will happen this afternoon? I'll have lunch and say, you know what, I think I'll go, you know, put a coat of paint on that tape, and I'll step in the very pathway that I've walked a thousand times. Because that's just the way we are. And that well-worn path in my backyard, any of y'all have dogs? Do you have some well-worn paths in your backyards? Because the dogs walk the fence every day or they walk a certain path and you have a... And you say, why don't those stupid dogs go zigzag for once? I don't know what it is about us, but we, we go down the same paths we've always gone down unless there is an apocalypse... Where's Cameron? He prayed for an apocalypse this morning that we would have a new understanding. Well done in the prayer. That's the correct use of the biblical word. Not that the world would end during the sermon, but that we would have a revealing and we would leave here walking a different way than we have walked before. So what pictures are in your head? And then you have to ask yourself, are those correct pictures? You know, this is what I've always believed. Okay, great. But is it right? Uh, is it, are the, the right pictures in your head? Uh, it, Christmas is highly influenced because of Christmas decorations and Christmas cards. 
When we talk about the return of Christ, the pictures in your head are highly influenced by the books you've read or the movies you've seen. And once you've seen those pictures or read those words, and when you read a book, your mind makes the pictures, it's hard to alter those pictures. The most famous pictures of the end times came to us by, uh, through the Left Behind series of books. Mm -hmm. Looks very familiar. Uh, How many of y'all read the Left Behind series? Yeah, of course. You're my problem kids this morning. And I know right where you are now to preach to you. You, you have those pictures in your head. And so I'm fighting against one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, like 16 volumes. I'm fighting against 16 word picture volumes. You might have pictures are in your head as you read this. Now, the author of these books is Tim LaHaye. Aren't those two handsome guys right there? That's me and Tim LaHaye. I went to San Diego Christian College and uh, met Tim LaHaye. He's a super kind and gracious gentleman. Uh, he's gone to heaven recently, but if you had a chance to know him, you would have come away very impressed with his graciousness and his kindness. Uh, I'm a poor fellow from Texas and went to, uh, wanted to go back to San Diego to get a degree. And when I did, uh, is actually underwritten by Tim LaHaye Scholarship. So before you say, Pastor, you're... I, I know Tim LaHaye, I respect him, and he wrote these books, and I'm not trying to dishonor him, I'm trying to say we can differ on some things. Now, in Tim LaHaye's books, Tim believes very strongly that the rapture of believers is an evacuation of Christians to heaven. Okay? He believes very strongly about that. That there will be a rapture and there will be pilotless planes and driverless cars and, 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 the, and things will come crashing down and there will be people left behind and panic in the streets followed by uh, uh, the Antichrist coming to power, a great time of tribulation on the earth. Christians are going to find themselves, if you get saved in the tribulation and become a Christian, you're going to find yourself part of the resistance movement and probably even in armed conflict with the Antichrist. And then Jesus will come again like a third time and he will fight the battle of Armageddon when all nations gather against Israel and Megiddo and, and Jesus will defeat Satan and he will set up a thousand year literal kingdom reign on earth. When I use thousand this morning or millennium, it's the same Word. You'll set up a thousand year reign of Christ on earth. And you say, well, what happens at the end of the thousand? Well, then Satan is released from prison. He goes out to deceive the nations again. Another epic battle happens and Christ defeats Satan yet again. And then judgment and we usher in the new heaven and the new earth called the final state or the eternal state. There's a lot of moving parts in that. Now, what I just described is what most of you were taught. That is your your tradition, that is your roots. This is also what the overwhelming majority of evangelicals believe. Now, I'll give you a little personal disclosure. The more I read the Bible and the more I learn to read the Bible, you said the more I learn to read the Bible year by year and read it correctly, I no longer find that that literal interpretation is correct for me. Because to me, it totally ignores genre. Now, if I'm losing you right here, you have to go back and listen to last week's sermon so you know what we're talking about. But this style totally ignores genre. And in this style of interpretation, it'll take one phrase literally, and then right next to it, the next sentence, it'll take symbolically or figuratively. And it's a very confusing and random and inconsistent way to interpret scriptures. And to me, it complicates the whole story that God is trying to communicate to his people. And I find it to be confusing. And I find it to be like some secret code that only some really, really deep Christians that are experts can untangle and tell us what's going to happen. Now, bring all that up because I want to talk about Revelation a little bit this morning. The book of Revelation is the source material for most of the end times debates. The book of Revelation is highly symbolic because of its genre. Now here's what we learned last week. Genre matters. Genre absolutely matters. In some genres, like poetry, like apocalyptic, in some genres, 
language is figurative. It is not meant to be taken literally. There are numbers, there are symbols, there are images, and, and none of them are literal, yet they point to literal realities. They are non-literal, but they point to something that's literal. When you see Satan, I don't think he will be a red dragon. Does that make sense? But it points to something that's literal. There is a Satan. Does that make sense? I don't think the 1,000 is the thing to get hung up on. It's not a literal number. It's figured out, but it points to something. And what is that something? That Christ will reign. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> it's a bit confusing. It's non-literal literalism. The symbol is not literal. It's just a symbol. But it points to a literal truth. And that has to do with the genre of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is written in an ancient Jewish genre called apocalyptic literature. It's not the only. The book of Daniel is written in apocalyptic. Uh, Isaiah, uh, other books in the Bible have apocalyptic structures or sections in them. It's a highly symbolic style of writing that uses numbers and images and pictures and symbols to represent realities and its ultimate design of apocalyptic is not to confuse you. Uh, when John wrote the book of Revelation of the first century, I don't think they were confused. I think they understood what he was saying. Apocalyptic literature helps Christians see that Jesus is on the throne, that Satan is bound, that our loved ones who have died are in heaven right now ruling and worshiping and they are with Christ and they are waiting for the resurrection and the next thing that's going to happen. Apocalyptic literature helps us who are alive on this earth, who are following Christ, it helps us live in resistance to the world's empires. Apocalyptic is resistance literature. Now let that sink in, because if you get resistance literature, you'll understand the book of Daniel, you'll understand some of these Old Testament apocalyptic inserts into the prophets, you'll come closer to understanding the book of Revelation. It's highly symbolic, it's meant as resistance literature. And the reason Christians need resistance literature is because not everything's going to break your way. Sometimes it's going to break against you. And it helps us live victoriously knowing that Jesus is in control and that a renewal of creation is coming. The world won't always be this way. You're frustrated with your own body because it breaks down, it hurts, it gets sick, and you're just like, it won't always be this way, ladies and gentlemen. You have an incorruptible body coming that is eternal and like Christ. It will not always be this way. And Christians of the first century... This is now the original apostle, the original disciples of Jesus. The Christians of the first century needed this resistance literature. They were being persecuted by the Roman Empire and they needed somebody to write something that said, Hey, resist, fight back, push back, endure, stay faithful to Jesus Christ. See, the loved ones that you, that you bear, they're in heaven, worshiping and reigning and singing with you. And see, Jesus is on the throne. And see, we're going to win. That literature motivated them and encouraged them. Daniel's apocalypse in the Old Testament, it's the most famous piece of apocalypse writing in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel. Daniel is written in the same way. The context of Daniel is that as teenage boys, they were enslaved by Babylon And they were taken back captives when Babylon invaded Israel. And as captive slaves in a foreign country, they were made eunuchs. And they were forced to go to the Chaldean University to learn Chaldean ways, language, arts, law, religion. And then they were promoted to work within the palace government system. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel... They excelled in everything, and God was blessing them, but they were slaves to Babylon. And so Daniel was inspired by God to write this apocalyptic literature to the followers of God, the followers of the Lord. And what did it help them do? Resist Babylon. Live in a broken world. Live knowing the empires of this world are not godly, and push through and keep... Do you remember what they told Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? 
you will bend your knees to the golden image. You know what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said? We will not bow down to the golden image. They said, we'll throw you in a fiery furnace. They say, fine, God can save us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. Resistance literature. You know why now? They told Daniel, you can't pray except to King Nebuchadnezzar. You know what Daniel said? Oh, it's prayer time. And he went and got on his knees and, and prayed. Now, resistance literature. They were, they were doing their jobs, but when the world said, you, you must worship something other than God, they said, no, we're not going to go down that road. And they just resisted. And, and this resistance writing is the type of encouragement that got them through fiery furnaces and lion's dens and, and help them face persecution every day and come out on the other side. Now, I think the big thing for us this morning is we need to get our heads right uh, about suffering. We need to get our heads right about Christians' suffering. Followers of Christ have always suffered. I want you to be in tension right here because you haven't. Followers of Christ have always suffered, and followers of Christ will continue to suffer. Now, the book of Revelation was not written to us. If you look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, it says, to the, 12, to the seven churches of the provinces of Asia. The book of Revelation wasn't written to you. It's written to the churches in Asia. But it was preserved in the Bible for you. It wasn't written directly to you. It was written to them. But it's been preserved by the Holy Spirit, not just for the first century, but for the second century Christians and the third century Christians and the fourth century, and all the way to right now, so that we would have this resistance literature, so that we could endure persecution, we, we could push through and resist the empires of the world, while at the same time sharing the gospel and making disciples and living out the kingdom values that Christ modeled for us. Now... Let's kind of start tying it back to the end times. The idea that Christians would be raptured in a mass evacuation and we would all be airlifted out of here and escape to heaven. Uh, that way we would escape persecution because now the tribulation is going to be poured out on the earth after we're gone. And God's going to take us out before that happens. That idea, you might be shocked to know, is a relatively new idea. That idea didn't become popular among Christians until the 1800s. Somewhere 1830 or later, a Irish pastor named John Darby, uh, uh, John Nelson Darby. John Nelson Darby was an Irish pastor who developed the idea of a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial rapture. He had in his mind a timeline that before things got really bad on planet Earth, there's no way God would let his people go through that. So he's going to scoop you all up in a rapture and take trumpet will sound the dead and away we go. And we all evacuate out to heaven. Now, Darby had the idea and began to promote it, but it was Clarence Larkin who drew all the charts and he was a draftsman and made books and books and books about Daniel, Revelation, Dispensational Truth, Rightly Dividing the Word. I've read them all. Grew up on this stuff. Uh, and then a guy named C.I. Schofield began to make a study Bible. And a study Bible means it's just not the text of the Scripture. There's some notes down at the bottom that help explain what the verses are about. The problem is those are always slanted to the theology of the guy who writes the notes. C.I. Schofield produced the Schofield Reference Bible, which became the most famous and popular Bible in America, especially among evangelical Christians like your tradition. And so your great-granddaddy had a C.I. Schofield Reference Bible, and when he read the notes at the bottom of the page, they were pre-trib, pre-mill notes. And they said you should, they would explain these things exactly as Left Behind would explain them, in a certain theological bent. Now, their teaching was that before tribulation comes on the earth, God's going to take the church out in a rapture so that the church doesn't suffer. And when you ask for, can you give me a verse in the Bible that says that, they would typically go as a proof text to 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5. I've heard it all my life. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says this, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And when you proof text, you don't have to really understand what the passage means. If that sounds like it fits what you want it to say, then you just beat everybody over the head with it and say, See, God's not appointed us to wrath. He's taken us out. The problem is that's not what this verse is teaching. This verse has nothing to do with a rapture or the coming tribulation at the end of the age. In this verse, suffer wrath is set in opposition to the words receive salvation. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, set in opposition to, but to receive salvation. This verse's sister, (laughs) twin sister, is sitting over in the book of Romans chapter number 5. It's very consistent. Paul wrote them both. Let me show you what Paul said in Romans. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is part of the Romans road, right? You're, you're, you're recognizing this. Look at the next verse, 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? It's not talking about the tribulation. It's talking about when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've moved from death to life, and there is no wrath in your future. There's no hell in your future. There's no purgatory in your future. There's no condemning judgment in your future. As a matter of fact, three chapters later, Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. You've moved beyond condemnation. You're under the blood of Christ. Does that make sense? That's what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about, well, you're never going to stub your toe. You're never going to lose a job. You're you're never going to be criticized for being a follower of Christ. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's saying you're never going to face the eternal judgment of God because your sins are under the blood and you've received Christ and your slate's washed clean. Now, that's good, right? Okay, but it's not a proof text for the rapture. That's my point. It has nothing to do with the rapture. It has nothing to do with whether Christians are going to suffer persecution. As a matter of fact, let me go the other way. The Bible is very consistent on what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Expect suffering in your future. You say, well, Pastor, why don't people preach this? For the obvious reasons. Because you'd like to have somebody else here this morning besides the pastor. Right? Uh, and, and if you preach, listen, judgment's coming, persecution's coming, folks that could get really rough on us as followers of Christ, that's not really the uplifting message you want to hear this morning. What you want to hear is maybe when we get to more of the end of the sermon this morning, God's got you. It's going to be okay. But I want you to know even though God's got you and it's going to be okay, there very well could be suffering in your future. Now let me show you how consistent this is. And I don't need a proof text. I could go to almost any book in the New Testament to show you this. That's how I know it's the truth. Here's what John told the church of Smyrna about persecution. You ready? Do not be afraid of what you are about to. I tell you the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. That's John. Here's what Paul told the Philippians, the European Christians in Philippi. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. You've not only been called to have salvation through Christ, you've been given the opportunity to suffer for Christ. Now see, the problem is that the New Testament Christians are being told this is a privilege. We see this as a big old curse. We don't want nothing to do with it. Suffer? Are you kidding? We're Americans. My AC go out? That's like the tribulation. You know what I'm saying? Seriously, Okay. This is consistent with what Paul told the Corinthian believers about suffering. Stay with me because some of these passages are lengthy, but I want you to see it in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 5. For just as we share abundantly, read it out loud, in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings 
we suffer. That's four times in two verses. Verse 7. And our hope for you is firm. Because we know just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. Verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. Have you ever felt like this now? We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. This is it. We're all going to die for Jesus right here. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. And if we die, he raises the dead. Now, that's the mindset of real Christians right here. We're going to serve Jesus, and it may cost us our lives. But you know, that wouldn't be the end of the world because Jesus raises the dead. How do you know? Because he was raised from the dead. That's how we know. Now, is it consistent? Yeah, Peter wrote the same thing to the churches of Asia Minor. 1 Peter 1.6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Listen, our, our rejoicing is really coming. Don't you worry about that. It's a fact. But now you may have to suffer in all kinds of trials. That's okay. As long as you know what's coming, you can push through resistance literature. Resistance literature helps you see how the thing ends. Helps you know how to resist and push through. It's exactly what Paul told the Thessalonians. Let me read it for you. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ. And we sent him to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. So that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are all destined for them. Destined for what? Trials is the object. Paul said, I want to write to you about the trials, church, so that none of you, you know, lose your mind and fall by the wayside and throw in the towel and give up and be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. We win. But listen, you're destined for trials. You're destined for trials. You've got a, you've got a cracked icon of God living in a broken world, and, and, and Satan would like to do you all in. Yeah, it's going to be tough. You're destined for a little suffering. So how are we to view suffering? Jesus began to talk to them because they were asking him about the end times. And rather than just address their question about the end times, Jesus actually addressed a question about what happens all the way from now to the end times. Let me read it for you and you'll see it. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and they said, Tell us what will happen and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. We're not there yet. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines. There will be earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the birth pain. Oh, we're just at the beginning. We're not near the end. We're at the beginning of the end. Yeah, we're going to have a delivery, but the birth pains have just started. We've got a ways to go. These are the beginning of the birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and to be put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Now, a lot of people read something like this, like, see, there's the tribulation. Well, how is it that he's talking to his people and saying they're going to go through it then? Have you ever put those two things together? <laughs> Except the days were shortened for the elect's sake. They could not survive. Well, whatever's happening here, Christians are going through it. That's what's very clear. All right? And what Jesus is saying is this isn't the end of the world. This is not the uh, cataclysm at the end. What Jesus is saying is this is just an average day on planet Earth. And it's, an, it's in the whole thing's in labor. Waiting for a new thing that needs to happen a renewal of earth and a resurrection of the body. We're waiting for a big change to come. And you say, what's all of this upheaval and war and famine and pestilence and pandemic? Surely this is the end. Sell everything and let's move to a compound. Jesus is saying, don't do it. 
this is just another day on planet Earth. A lot of you have been seeking for answers. What do I make of COVID-19? Ladies and gentlemen, the problem is you're young. But there was a Spanish flu. There was smallpox. There was bubonic plague. There was SARS. There's going to be something else after this one. And there's going to be something else after this one. You say, yes, but it's worse than it's ever been. Only because you're going through it. (laughs) Your grandparents would differ with you. You see what I'm saying? Uh, You say, well, we've got unrest in the Middle East. Tell it to your grandpa who fought at the Battle of the Bulge in World War II or in the South Pacific on Okinawa. They thought that was hell on earth and surely was the end. I'll tell you what Jesus said. It's just another day on planet earth. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars and nation will rise against nation. You know what comes, you know what's going to happen this week? Wars and rumors of wars and nation rise against nation. You know what's going to happen this week? Some people are going to get well and some people are going to get sick. You know what's going to happen this week? The same thing that's been happening on a loop since the days of Jesus Christ. Now, if you can get the picture in your mind right now, you know, so, uh, Susan and I sometimes have playlists, and if we're having trouble shutting our mind down, we'll play music at night and help us kind of, you know, bring it down a little bit, maybe fall asleep to some soothing thing going on. And one night we just couldn't sleep, and Susan yelled at Alexa, Put it on loop! <laughs> She was frustrated because she couldn't sleep with no concern whether I was asleep or not. So none of us were asleep at that point, but Alexa was alert, and she responded immediately. She's so obedient. She said, it is on loop. And I want you to know it went on loop until we woke up. We woke up next morning. It was still looping. Now stay with me. If you've got that picture in your mind, you'll understand what's happening in the world in which you live. It's on loop. And loop mode has been engaged since the days of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, I'm waiting for this, and I'm waiting for Israel that, and I'm waiting for the Antichrist. You can stop it right now. Well, I'm waiting for the market. Just stop it with your crazy talk. It's on loop. And you're living through what Christians have always lived through, except you have a cell phone and a Tesla. But it's the same world and the same brokenness, and the same rival against good and evil. It's the same. It's just now with cell phones and lots of electricity and air conditioning. Okay? You say, well, I just don't know what tomorrow brings, and I'm so unsettled. Calm down. Don't be upset. The world's on loop, and it's going to stay on loop until Jesus shows up and takes it off loop. Does that make sense? I think this may be the best communication I'm having with you right now about resistance literature. Resistance literature is telling the church it's on loop, guys. You say, well, which empire is, is, is John talking about in the book of Revelation? The Roman Empire? The Turk Empire? The Austro-Hungarian Empire? Napoleon's Empire? Charlemagne's Empire? Hitler's Empire? Russia's Empire? America's Empire? The British Empire? Which empire is John talking about? Yes. You got it now. Just plug and play, different names, different faces, different dates. It's all one big loop. We're in Groundhog Day. If you've seen the movie, it's one big loop now. You say, well, how are we ever going to get it off loop? You, you don't have to worry about that. Jesus Christ is going to come take it off loop. Because you know what we believe? We believe he will return to judge the living and the dead. You're not waiting for codes and signs and secrets and and, and Da Vinci codes to be unraveled and then this has to happen and then Russia has to do this and then China has to do this and then Israel has to do this and then we have to... You can just stop the crazy talk right now. You can erase all the writing off the walls in the basement. Paint over that. Get rid of the yarn and the strings and and the craziness. You're supposed to be making disciples until Jesus comes. You say, well, what's, what's going to happen is what's always happened. Christians are going to be persecuted. There's going to be wars. And, and, okay, so that brings us to this question. I've got to hurry. Why aren't American Christians suffering persecution? Yeah, that is a really big question, and I wrestle with this all the time. Because almost every week of my life, I have to call a Christian somewhere else in this world and talk them through what they're dealing with. 
And what they're dealing with is running from the law and hiding in basements and secretly making disciples so they won't be arrested, their money confiscated. It's a whole different world out there. So why aren't Christians suffering persecution? I'm going to let you wrestle with it a little bit. I don't have tons of good answers. Maybe we're not worthy of it. I don't, I don't know. Maybe we couldn't hold up under it. Maybe we're a bunch of, you know, milk toast. And I don't know. I've got a lot of answers. I don't know which ones are correct. I didn't choose to be born in America, though, so I can't feel guilty for not suffering. I mean, God put me here by his destiny. So maybe he wants me to be free so that I can do something while some people who aren't free can't travel. I, I'm trying to figure it out. And I don't really have a great answer to this question, except the two sentences I'm about to give you. The persecution of Christians throughout all of the last 2,000 years is not global and unrelenting. So when I say to you that Rome was persecuting the church in the first century, not everywhere. Only in certain locations and only for periods of time. Does that make sense? The persecution of the church was not global and unrelenting. The persecution of the church historically has been localized and sporadic in certain places and very you say well they're cutting Christians heads off this morning yeah they probably are where in Afghanistan but not in Kentucky and not in France and not in Argentina does that make sense it's localized and it's more sporadic you say pastor why is that because Satan is restricted This goes back to your reading of Job chapter number 1. God said, have you considered Job? And Satan said, well, if you'd let me get to him. And God said, well, yeah, I can't get to him. You've got me, you know, restricted. You've got me bound some way and I can't touch his life. And God said, well, I'll let you touch him. But I'm still going to restrict you. You can't kill him. Have you all read that? You say, well, why aren't we all dead? Because somehow God has restrained Satan so he won't kill you and your children. And burn down this church and stop the gospel from going out. Somehow he is bound right now. So I want to say this. Persecution of Christianity is localized and sporadic. But in the end, if somehow Satan was unrestrained, Christians would be dead tomorrow. You say, which ones? Yeah. All of you. Your kids, your mom, your dad, your uncle, your cousin, all of them. No more gospel would go out. It would be shut down. He would blind the hearts of the world against the gospel if he were unrestrained. And when he's unrestrained, if he is unrestrained, and when he is unrestrained, persecution of Christianity will be global and unrelenting until every last Christian is hunted down and killed. Now that brings us to Revelation 20. It took me that long to set it up. Here we go. These are the six verses that all the eschatological, that means end times, study of end times. These are the six verses that control all of the debate. I'm going to read them for you. Revelation 20, verse 1. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon. Symbol for who? Symbol points to a reality. He sees the ancient serpent. Who is that? Yeah, symbol pointing to a reality. Who is the devil? Who's that? Satan or Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and he locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection, the second death, has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for 
a thousand years. Now, if you can just shake yourself right now and focus, this is the hardest part of this message because it gets technical. This leads us to a thing called millennialism. Millennialism is the view that Revelation 20 verses 1 to 6 should be interpreted literally. It looks for the return of Christ to the earth a second time to reign over a worldwide kingdom for 1,000 literal years. The millennialism discussion divides Christianity into three basic groups. You don't have to email me. I know there's a bunch of subsets. I got it. But I've got to make it easy for us this morning. Millennialism is the belief that Revelation is talking about a literal 1,000-year kingdom on earth. The discussion then must divide people into three groups because three different groups of people see this discussion three different ways, all pointing to biblical texts for their explanation. The three basic groups are premillennial, postmillennial, and amillennial. Some people believe Christ comes before the millennial and then he reigns. Some people believe that there is a reign and then Christ comes. And there's another group that think you're all crazy. They're called all millennials and they don't see it that way at all. Okay? So that's what we're going we're, we're to talk about for just a moment. When you talk about millennialism, how you see the end times, okay? Millennialism has, makes a very big deal about two main features of millennialism, which are the rapture, uh, uh, where you want to put the rapture, how about that, in, in the timeline of things, and the great tribulation. So, is there a rapture? When does it happen? And boy, when things get bad on the earth, are the Christians here or are the Christians not here? So, the tribulation and, and the rapture are big foundation stones in whatever position you choose to take. Many Christians, probably most in this room, were taught that the tribulation was a specific seven-year period uh, immediately before the millennial reign. That there would be a rapture, seven years of tribulation, and then Christ would come and set up a millennial reign on the earth. And God would judge the world through this uh, time of tribulation and the world would suffer greatly. Other Christians, as a matter of fact, historically the majority of Christians, think the tribulation should be regarded in a symbolic way. And that this time of great tribulation is a way of describing what I just described to you, the loop. The ongoing persecution of Christians since the day of Jesus until this day and through every age. Now let me comment briefly on the three groups. You're going to be in one of these three groups. I'm not talking down to you. I know we're all in the room this morning, okay? And you don't have to, we don't have to put the premillennials here and the posts here and the awe here and then shoot at each other. It's not going to be like that. So premillennialism is this. Premillennialism is a pessimistic view of the world that says that things are getting steadily worse on the earth and we will go through a continual downslide of deterioration until God steps in. He's had enough now and the world's gotten bad enough and now God's going to step in and take action in a way that is catastrophic. And will bring the world to this catastrophic end. Premillennialism is based on a literal interpretation of Revelation chapter number 20. Uh, premillennialism has, like I said, some variations, at least three different rapture variations. But basically, premillennialism teaches there will be a rapture of the saved. All the Christians evacuate to heaven before the great tribulation happens. And then that's followed by another return of Christ at the end of the tribulation where he comes to judge, fight the battle of Armageddon, and set up a thousand-year reign. But after the thousand-year reign, you just read it from Revelation 20, Satan is unleashed from the bottomless pit again upon planet Earth, and he goes out to deceive the nations again, another epic battle, and then the new heaven and the new earth. Now that's what most of you in the room were taught, premillennialism of some variety. What I'm concerned about mainly is how does my theology affect my behavior? Premillennialism is a pessimistic view of the world. That's why it fits so beautifully in Baptist churches. Uh, am I lying? Uh, because the, the gist in the room is pessimism. 
The world's going to hell in a handbasket. It's just never going to be any better. It's just, oh, oh, my gallbladder. Oh, the president. Oh, the helicopter. It's just always something. It's just always terrible. The world is always terrible. If you talk to me like that, I will make the assumption you are a premillennialist when you talk to me. Okay? And I won't be far off. Okay? It's a pessimistic view of the world, but it affects your behavior. Okay? How do premillennial beliefs affect Christian behavior? Well, premillennialists believe that the important thing for Christians to do is to prepare themselves for, for the end times. Preppers are premillennialists, typically. Okay? Prepare yourself for the end times. Lead as many people to salvation as you can so that they're ready for the day of judgment. Premillennialists don't really see a point in Christians trying to improve the world at all. Climate change, throw your trash out in the street, doesn't matter. Don't try to save the planet, it doesn't matter. You don't have to improve the world because God's going to take care of all that and he's going to cleanse the world when he comes. And by the fact, he'll destroy much of it when he comes and then he'll remake it. Premillennialists are in favor of evangelism and missionary work. These are their, their really big works that they do. Uh, evangelism and missionary work to convert people to belief in Jesus Christ. They're much less enthusiastic about church being involved in politics. Premillennialists are much less enthusiastic about social reforms. Premillennialists are much less enthusiastic about making disciples. Premillennialists use their energy and efforts to make sure that churches are focused on leaving the planet and, and hoping that it comes today, and they overemphasize any teaching around prophecy, Israel, the rapture, heaven, and hell. Now, that's kind of a synopsis of premillennialism. And that's what most of us were raised, that's our tradition, most of us. Postmillennialism, now we're just going to move that kingdom of God down the timeline a little bit. Postmillennialism is an overly optimistic viewpoint. That the thousand year uh, number, the thousand years spoken of in Revelation is not literal. Instead, the thousand years are a symbol of the prophesied era of peace and righteousness and prosperity that will take place on planet earth without the presence of Jesus Christ through the work of the church before the glorious return of Christ at the end of the age. I'll come at it several times so you get it in your head. Postmillennialism expects that the situation here on earth is going to get better and better and better and Christianity is going to spread until the vast majority of people living on planet earth are now saved and following Jesus Christ. And when the world turns into that blessed golden utopia, then Jesus Christ returns to end history with a resurrection and a judgment and the new heaven and new earth follow in the eternal order. Postmillennialists believe that Christ established his kingdom on earth when he was here the first time, and now he's equipping the church with the gospel. He's empowering us through the Holy Spirit. He's given us charge of the Great Commission, and we've got to make disciples, and we are right now in the reign of Christ. Right now, Christ is on the throne. Right now, your loved ones who have passed are ruling with him, and right now, he's in charge, and the millennial reign is figurative, and it is right now. So how does post-millennial belief affect Christian behavior? In this way, the outcomes of postmillennialism are the church should take a major role in political reform, in social reform, and we should be reshaping the world to advance God's kingdom. Secondly, countries should be ruled by religious governments. We should get Christians into government, take over the world, and we should rule through religious governments in a way to bring about God's kingdom on earth, and then he will come interesting isn't it you may find you're a mix of these but that's hard to do because they're in competing camps okay amillennialism ah is the negation of the rest of the word like ah theist don't believe in god agnostic i'm a not knower amillennial says you're framing the argument wrong completely amillennialists don't believe in the millennium as a specific literal 1000 year period since the only place in the entire Bible it's mentioned is in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. And since Revelation is written in the apocalyptic genre, numbers and symbols and imagery are not to be taken literally. All millennialists believe that the reign of Christ has already been established at his resurrection. 
and that He is already ruling and reigning in heaven along with those who are already in Christ, our loved ones who are there with Him. They are saved. They are already reigning with Him. And we here on earth have been given the Holy Spirit. We are the new Israel. Everybody in the premillennial camp is waiting for Israel to be established as a country. And when Israel does this and when Israel does that and when Israel does this, Israel is old news. Paul said those who are physically circumcised are not Israel. Those who have a circumcised heart are Israel. Israel is an idea, not a genealogy. Israel is a philosophy. It is a way of living. It is following Christ. You are the new Israel, church of Jesus Christ. You're not waiting for Israel to do anything. You're just waiting for Jesus to show up. You've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit comes in, you are now the living temple of God. The temple of God. Heaven and earth have already reunited in you. Let me ask a question. Does God live in you? Heaven is God's space. Earth is your space. Does God live in you? Heaven and earth have connected in you already. You're a living temple that's consistent with what Paul taught. What? No, you're not. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you. You're the new temple. You're the new Israel. And Christ is already reigning from from heaven. And we are advancing the kingdom of God on earth. And we are called to live out what you read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Kingdom values. Love your neighbor. Do unto others. You're called right now because you are in the kingdom. Even if our government doesn't bow the knee to Jesus. Even if Russia doesn't bow the knee to Jesus. Even if North Korea doesn't bow the knee to Jesus. We've bowed the knee to Jesus. And he's already asking us to live out kingdom values while we await the return of Jesus Christ. And in this era, Satan is bound. You say, how do I know? Because I'm preaching the gospel and we're all still alive. That's how I know. Now, when you think of bound and locked in the bottomless pit, you think uh, Supermax somewhere up in Colorado. They've thrown you in a hole and locked the lock in an isolary solitary confinement it's apocalyptic literature it's not meant to be taken literally it points to a literal truth when i saw an angel descend from heaven with a great chain and a lock and he locks bound satan and he threw him in the bottomless pit it's not literal but it's pointing to a literal truth so what would the literal truth be he is somehow restricted that he can't stop the nations from hearing the gospel You say, well, is there persecution? Yeah, isolated and sporadic right now. Well, the passage says that he would escape, that he would get get out and unrestricted. Yeah. Does that make anybody nervous? Yeah. That's what it says. That's what it says. And that's why the tribulation is going to pick up when the labor pains, when when, when the contractions start coming like this. If Satan were to be released... You'd be looking for the resurrection any little bit. Amillennialists hold that Christ's reign is identical with the present church age. He's reigning right now in this church age. And when Christ returns, there will be a resurrection of the saved, final judgment for the lost, and the earth would be renewed. Boom, 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 just like that. Christ would come, we're resurrected, down he comes, the judgment happens, and the new heaven and new earth are on. You should have always been asking yourself, why only a thousand year reign? Why not a thousand and one? Numbers don't mean anything. It's apocalyptic writing. It means reign, glorious, long, long reign. Okay, so how do amillennial beliefs affect Christian behavior? I'm always interested in this. All millennial beliefs should affect Christian behavior in this way. They believe the kingdom is already present in the lives of believers, so therefore all believers should be living by heaven's values while living here on this earth. Does that seem fair? You're already to be living by the values Jesus modeled right now. Uh, the church is the new Israel, and we are the temple of God because His Spirit's in us, so the church is to be on the mission of making disciples and colonizing earth for the kingdom of heaven. Now you're in one of those three camps, okay? Premillennial, postmillennial, or amillennial. You'll have to decide which one of those camps you're in. But here's what I want to say as I wind it up. As we live out our lives on planet Earth, 
And as you mature, it's fair to say that you won't see things the same at the age of 40 that you did at the age of 20. It's fair to say that when you get to be 60 or 70, you're going to see things through a different set of lenses than you did when you were 30 and 40. What I'm saying to you, as you live your life out here on planet Earth, your uh, theological, your religious views may change. And your views will change. not something to be afraid of. Your theological views may change because your theological views are constantly being challenged by real life. And after 50 years of living in the loop on planet Earth, it will condition the way you see things. Is that fair? And so you see things differently now, having lived down here for a while, and you've watched the loop, make the loop a million times, and you're like, wow, Jesus, it's just another day on planet Earth. What does that look like? Pandemic, disease, warfare, rumors of war, government scandal, persecution of Christians. Just that's what it looks like. And that's been the loop for about 2,000 years. But that begins to challenge your theology. And I'll show you how it does. The premillennialists were the big predictors of the end of the age, the end of the world. So the pre-trib premillennialists who predicted the return of Christ will happen in 1980. No, I said, I meant 1990. No, did I say that? I meant the year Y2K. It's going to happen. Those who have predicted the return of Christ on a specific date were all premillennialists, all of them. And they were all proven 100% to be false in their prediction. You know how I know that? Here we are. Now, that doesn't mean that all the whole view of premillennialism is wrong just because that one aspect or the behavior of one group in that camp is wrong. But it does mean that the words of Jesus are still in effect when he told his followers no one knows the day or the hour of Christ's return. But I want to be an equal opportunity abuser here. So the post-millennial view that the world is getting better and better and better and then Christ will return, does that make anybody nervous in the room? This viewpoint that existed since about the 300s, this viewpoint all but collapsed in Europe where you got the gospel from, this viewpoint all but collapsed in Europe as earthquakes ravaged Europe and you went from the 1800s into the 1900s and in the 1900s you had two world wars that not only engulfed the continent of Europe but engulfed the entire world and all of the Christians who saw the British Empire spreading and said, look, it's the glorious golden age. Christ will come soon. We've gonna, we're going to Christianize the whole world. It's getting better and better. <sighs> Earthquake, collapse of city, collapse of city, people buried alive, catastrophe after catastrophe. Two world wars break out and engulf the, the continent and the planet. And you know what Christians begin to say in Europe and in America? Yeah, don't think we read that right. Looks like our eschatology is off. Maybe we misinterpreted what Revelation was teaching us. Things are not getting better and better. And it does not look like Christianity is going to overtake the world. And the post-millennial view all but collapsed around World War II. But you'll still find post-millennialists. People who hold any of the views that I've spoken about this morning can all present good arguments from the Bible about why they hold the views they hold. What I want to say to the people of Cornerstone, because we're training a lot of young theologians here, I want to say this to you. I don't think Christians should be overly combative about the views that they hold against the views that others hold. I know we all want to be faithful to Scripture and we want to understand it as best we can. But let's never suggest that people who hold the other position are any less authentically Christian than we are. Is that fair? Because they're trying to follow the Bible as best they understand it and as they see it. We want to be faithful to Scripture. But listen, this, what I'm talking about right now, is a family discussion. It's an in-house debate between brothers and sisters at the dining room table. And those brothers and sisters love each other so much that they would never divide the church over their viewpoint. And as long as we can frame the discussion in the terms I just laid out, we can have an incredibly robust family conversation. Because in the end, we all belong to Christ, 
And we all believe Christ is coming back to this earth. True statement? Let me recap it now what you've learned in the last couple of weeks. And I want to use Philippians to recap it. It'll take me one minute. Philippians chapter number 2 says that we're to develop a kingdom attitude. I want to read it for you. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset. The old KJV, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God to be something to use of his own image. Have Christ's mindset. Have a kingdom attitude. Now here comes Christmas. Are you ready? Verse 7. But rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, born in a manger in Bethlehem. Here comes the gospel, verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Here comes the ascension. Therefore God has exalted him to the highest place and given him a name that is above every name. Here comes the judgment that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Here comes the new heaven and new earth. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await from a Savior for, from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Here's how beliefs determine behavior. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and whom I long for, my joy and my crown. Here's what I want to say to you. Stand firm in the Lord. Correct beliefs dictate a behavior. What you believe determines how you live. So what's Paul's summary of good theology? Therefore, my brothers and sisters, I love you so much. I long for you. Man, you're in my prayers. You're, you're like family to me. Brothers and sisters, what I want to say to you, stand firm in the Lord. Resistance literature so that you can keep going. Stand firm in the Lord. So here's my question for you. Can you do this? Can you stand firm in the Lord? Jesus is going to return. With that understanding, can you push through this week? Can you say a kind word? Can you lift someone in prayer? Can you give a glass of water in the name of Jesus? Can you buy somebody a coffee? Can you share the gospel? Can, can you make a disciple? Can, can you just push through one more week because you understand these truths that Christ will come and He will make it all right? I know it's hard now. I know you go through trials. I know we have thousands of people sick in our community right now. It's not the end of the world. It's on a loop. It's another day on planet Earth. But Jesus will come eventually. And when He comes, He's going to set it all right. With that knowledge, can you just stand firm in the faith? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I want you to go to the Lord in prayer for just a moment before we dismiss. I want you to think about what was said. I, I would like this to be a great reformation for our church, maybe for you as an individual. Maybe you've never really challenged what you believe. Maybe you've never seen another angle or viewpoint. Maybe you never know any other viewpoints existed in Christianity. But maybe the Holy Spirit has spoken something to your heart this morning that's really challenged you to see it differently. I want you to embrace that and I want you to say to the Holy Spirit right now in your prayer, I want you to say, Dear, dear Holy Spirit, reveal the truth to my mind. Give me spiritual eyes to see from the Word of God what you're trying to communicate to me. Lord, don't let me be in confusion. Let me have clarity. As you show me the truth, I'll embrace the truth. I'll get into the Word of God and read again, re-engage with the text. The early Christians were taught to pray, Your kingdom come.
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think that's a good prayer for us to pray right now. In your heart, I want you to pray, Lord, your kingdom come. Let it come first in me and through me. Lord, I am your temple. Lord, you have given me your presence in the Holy Spirit. Empower me to live victoriously in a world that's broken. Maybe some of you are suffering right now in ways that no one else knows about. I want you just to give that suffering to the Lord right now and say, Lord, you know my suffering. You know my anguish. You know what I'm dealing with. It can come in a thousand different varieties. Will you just articulate that to the Lord right now and say, Lord, you you see me. You know what's going on in my life. Lord, help me to push through. Give me the strength. Give me the courage. Give me the faith. Give me the endurance to push forward. Stay faithful. Stay focused. Model the kingdom and make disciples while this broken world goes through its loop again. Lord, let our church, Lord, let our families be golden shining lights of the kingdom of God to this community. Father, I lift up my brothers and sisters as Paul did in his admonition. Long for each other. We yearn for each other to be healthy, to be holy, to be sound. And God, I pray that this congregation would, Lord, commit itself afresh this morning to you to live out the kingdom values, to live out our lives as a living temple filled with your spirit little glimpse of heaven in our lives every day to a world that needs to see Jesus and see the gospel being lived out. God, raise up disciple makers and disciples from this congregation. Lord, we pray for our broken world. Your kingdom come. Your will be done here in Fort Worth, here in Keller, here in Saginaw, right here, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our prayer together in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Let's stand together. I'm going to ask you to repeat with me. Let's say the Apostles' Creed together. Every time we say it, it gets further into your mental pathways. Let's wear a path right now together, and hopefully some of this is sticking in our minds. Here we go. I believe in God, the Father Almighty creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. God's people said. God bless you. Hope you have a good rest tomorrow.